This episode of Creativity in Captivity is sponsored by the Curtis Theater in Brea, California. Presenting Dawn Reed's The Never Too Late Show on Saturday, May 11th. Tickets are available at the Curtis Theater website. Get ready for insight and inspiration on the creative process from an array of artists, writers, and visionaries on May 9th, when Season 7 of Creativity in Captivity kicks off. In the meantime, please enjoy over 150 episodes hosted by Pat Hazel with a stable of creative guests in our listening lounge at creativityincaptivity.fun. This is Creativity in Captivity. I'm Pat Hazel, and today I welcome a professor of product design and a department head at the University of Minnesota Twin Cities. He's an artist, a musician, and speaker, as well as the author of the new book, Sparking Creativity, How Play and Humor Fuel Innovation and Design. Joining me now is diabolical designer, Dr. Barry Kudrowitz. That spark of electricity, a skipping stone that sets you free, you're captive to a mystery, the curse of creativity. La, 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 la. That was awesome. Thanks for having, having me on the show. <laughs> you're welcome. And I just added diabolical because I think you're doing some very crafty and unusual things, like being able to sort of use your whole toolkit. I'm taking my position here at the university to use my powers of research to understand creativity and do experimental studies. Which I think is cool. So you're going to be kind of one of our more researched and studied creativity experts. A lot of times people fall into one field or another. They might be an expert storyteller or an expert director or a choreographer. But I think you're falling into sort of the general deep dive of the creative arts and creativity in general. So I was reading about that in your book, Sparking Creativity, and I thought maybe you could share with the listener a little bit about the differences there between convergent thinking and divergent thinking. Sure, yeah. Some folks believe that creativity is about making non-obvious connections between seemingly unrelated things, and that's generally a convergent thinking process. So you are taking two worlds, mapping them together. That's the uh, associative theory of creativity by Sarnoff Mednick, if you want to get into academic stuff. But, you know, we call that different things, right? So when we take something from nature, you know, apply that to solving a problem, it's biomimicry, or biomimetics. When we take something from one industry, and we map it to another industry, that's exaptation. When we like just smush things together, and we get like Doritos taco, <laughs> we're, you know, crossing products. Yeah, cross bread or high bread. But I'll tell you what, in humor, it's the same way. That whole idea of juxtaposition, throwing something out of kilter is why we find it funny, is that you introduce that element of surprise into to the storytelling. So there's a theory of humor called the incongruity theory of humor. It's essentially the same thing as the associative theory of creativity. It says something's funny if two things come together that aren't expected to come together, but somehow make sense. It's also the same part of your brain. There's studies on this, the, the posterior superior temporal sulcus, part of his brain that's responsible for making non-obvious connections. And it's the same part of your brain that has that aha moment that is the same part that's responsible for getting the punchline to a joke. The unlikely marriage 
counselor that brings them together and, and gets them to sit down together and then we can find humor in it. It's the Harry Met Sally comedy theory. Finding the funny in something, this is like part of creativity, but it's also how we resolve conflict. It's how we approach situations that are new and we find things that are relatable in it. You know, it's more than just coming up with creative ideas too. This That humor is valuable for other things. It's transferable in many ways. And I guess I would ask you how creativity can be currency in a way, because it is, you can apply it to a lot of things that have value to folks. Yeah, I think I'm, I think my book is pretty general. Like it's it's creative tools that can be applied to, you know, design, but also the arts, engineering, business, humanities. That's why I love studying creativity in general because you know I can work with chefs and farmers one day, and then I can work with a medical device company, you know, the next day because it's being creative. They all want to be more creative and innovative. And the book is called. Sparking Creativity, uh, subtitle is How Play and Humor Fuel Innovation and Design. And what I like about it is it is academic, it is researched, but it's also got some whimsy and some fun and the illustrations and the storytelling and some of the journey that you've been on. You know, I was fascinated to find out that you designed a product for Nerf. That's kind of where I like to go. I'm nostalgic and there's emotions attached to things like a Nerf product. So how did you come to to be a designer of a toy for Nerf? Yeah, I, I wanted to design theme park rides. That was my thing. And I was told, you should go into engineering because that's who makes theme park rides. And so I, I did mechanical engineering. I think I was like, no, this is not the part of the ride that I want to do. I want to do like the theming and like what the concept of like, like what, what the ride's about. And so I was like, oh, okay, I need a pivot. And I was applying to grad schools in industrial design and culinary arts. Sort of on a whim, I applied to MIT and I, I got in and my advisor at the time was starting a project with Hasbro to come up with new types of projectile toys. Well, that's what I read that made me laugh is that you studied projectile toy design with Hasbro Inc. There's so much in there that was delicious to me. Just the idea that it was serious enough to study the projectile toy design, but also Nerf and Hasbro are just warm spots in my heart. Just the amount of Nerf basketball I played with underwear, you know, pulled over my pants to make it look like I was a ball player, you know, that kind of thing. That all came rushing back to me when I read that. My kids aren't old enough to appreciate that I was a toy designer yet. I don't think they get that concept, but it was special. This is a lot of dreams for people to design toys. And we would go to Hasbro in Pawtucket, Rhode Island, and we'd have meetings and they would be like, do you like these farting darts? And they'd be like, I don't know about that. <laughs> and, and like my colleagues at MIT, you know, they're like in like fluid dynamics labs running experiments on like micro fluidics and slow motion camera stuff. And I'm like, here's a toy gun that falls apart when you pull the trigger. <laughs> I'll give you a sentence that I used to use with my kids that made me laugh, which was because I was in 
comedy and magic and juggling. And, you know, there was always toys around in some way. And I would always say, those are not toys. Those are for daddy's work, but they were actually toys. And so that would confuse them. But I just loved being able to say that. They go, dad, it's an Etch-A-Sketch. No, but I'm being paid to draw something on it that's commercial. So do not shake it. It's one of those great moments where many of the people that I had in my life professional jugglers like the passing zone that were on America's Got Talent. These were the people that were coming to my house and they assumed that every dad could juggle and every dad could do magic tricks. That was the the world they lived in. It's fun when your work is your play. And I, I mean, I talk about that a little bit in the, in the book, but you know, you want to make sure that it it doesn't stop being play. There's some interesting studies on that. Like when you pay kids to like draw with markers, they only start drawing with markers if you pay them. And when you like, you know, reward people for doing certain things, they expect reward and they treat it like a job or a chore rather than fun. And then they were less creative. That's quite interesting. And I guess I see it in uh, one of my sons, very talented artist, very talented musician, all sorts of things, like played the first trombone at in March Band of everything. And I always said, oh, would you like to do that for a living? Or would you like to you know, do the art? It's like, well, I don't want to take the fun out of it. I want to be able to draw and doodle and do things without a deadline and without somebody breathing down my throat. And, you know, I mean, I think there are personality types that some can create on demand and others, you know, it tightens them up. But the word play which shows up quite a bit in your book. And also in this podcast, I know that Pete Doctor, who's the chief creative officer of Pixar, he said, that's the key to all of it, staying in a state of play. Yeah, um, I mean, that's, that's when creativity happens. When you are f- viewing something, activity as play, you are more creative in that activity. And there's a bunch of studies, including some of my own, where that, that same thing happens. You know, if you're in a situation where like you have to be creative, but you don't view it as play, the Steve Jobs approach is you should do something else. Whereas I I like the Mary Poppins approach where you can find the fun in anything. I'm with you on that. I think the way that you work with a team and if the leader of the team is oppressive, it has a tendency to stink the whole pot up. In order to be creative, there's some things that you need to do yourself. You know, you need to have some mindset you need to have knowledge of things you need to be open to change you have to have motivation but there's some things that are provided by the environment right so like do you have the time and the flexibility do you have a supportive manager to allow you to do things or do they say no you know get back to work we don't mess around in here but it matches the school too right so if you think about in a classroom setting And I'm guilty of this also. We're like, do the assignment exactly how I told you. Don't try to do it differently, you know, or you're going to get points off. It's funny. I I talk about how dads can be coerced very quickly based on rules. So when we were kids, my dad said, don't play ball in the house. We say, we always play ball in the house. And then he goes, oh, well, then let's make the ottoman second base. We'll make that lamp third base. Your dad will turn your living room into a stadium the minute you tell him you're doing it anyway. This is great parenting advice too, right? You know, if if the kid is being silly, not wanting to follow instructions, and this is like goes back to improv, you know, okay, let's go with it, right? Instead of fighting it. Th- that's a great way of of getting the kids on board with what you want to do. If they want to run around the house in a certain way, 
let's participate in that. Let's go with them. And then let's get into that play world with them such that we can craft those rules together. And hopefully they're not breaking glass or anything. Now we're in their play zone and we're not trying to stop their play. The interesting part of successful parenting, and there's many things that you can do right or wrong, but ultimately it's the time you spend with them. It's not the purchases you make. It's not, it's always that experience experience of how do you spend your time together? And that's your quiet times. That's your boisterous times. That's your road trip. They remember the time you spend and they remember the investment of seeing eye to eye or being on your belly, playing a game. They remember that. And I remembered it from my parents and my uncles and people. The ones that I was attracted to were the ones that leaned into spending time doing whatever it was. Didn't matter what it was. And I know that you wrote a dissertation on haha and aha, uh, creativity, idea generation, improvisational humor, all related, I think, to your product design. So you were actually like doing a deeper dive on this kind of thing. I went all in on improv for my PhD thesis. Somehow in mechanical engineering, I, I there were probably people <laughs> in the room saying, "What? what is this? But with the lens of like, how do you be creative designers? Can we learn from improv? That was the essence of it. If you think about improv workshops or games or even whose line is in any way, you know, it's all about listening, building on ideas, coming up with lots of ideas, deferring judgment. Those are the same skills for being good at team-based idea generation. It makes sense. And in our, in my research, I found that improv comedians come up with better product ideas than product designers. And it's, it, it goes back to those skills of, of improv. I mean, aside from maybe character development, it's almost the same skills for being good at, at idea generation. Do you do the New York Times connections or Wordle, or are there things like that that you do to kind of jumpstart your day? I do love crossword puzzles and I do like Wordle a lot. And I love word games and I love a lot of board games like Codenames is one of my favorite board games. It captures so much of verbal creativity skills. Do you know that Codenames has an online version where you can play kind of Zoom version of it? I, I just heard that. <laughs> well, I, I learned it over the pandemic and it was a lifesaver to be able to get together with friends all over the country. And it's really well designed. There's no work on your part other than getting in there and facilitating and sending out the invitations. And you can have kind of an unlimited number of players on teams, on sides. I'm going to get a little academic, but not too academic. There's a, a creativity test called the remote associates test or the rat. And essentially it like gives you three words and you have to figure out what's the connecting word, like a riddle sort of. It's it's essentially a test of convergent thinking, but it sort of requires you to to know these compound words, like what cottage cheese means, right? And so if you don't have maybe culturally, you don't have that background or you know, you don't know the references, it's not a great test of creativity. <laughs> but what essentially codenames is, is you are crafting your own remote associates test. So you are becoming like the test maker and you're coming up with a remote associates test for the other person to, to complete. 
I just find that fascinating. Like you're being creative on the side of making the test. And then there's creativity on the side of solving the riddle. So both, both players are being creative in that way. And there's like a little dialogue sort of like between them where you have to understand what the other person, how they think or what kind of things they like or what connections they would most likely make. Well, I think you will like, if you haven't tried the New York Times connections, this is a grid of 16 words and you have to pick out four that go together and four that go together and four together. And you have, you know, there's, you can get some misses, uh, but after what, after four misses, you're done no matter what, but it does absolutely stimulate that part of your brain. And there's nothing that presses a creative person more than to have an epic failure where you go, I can't believe it. Like I couldn't, how could I not do this? Well, what I like about it is also there's a wait till next day to do it again. You know, you really start to put your mind to it. So you'll go, ah, maybe I'll pause right now and, and get like, I love that whole process of really judging yourself saying, wait, 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 I want to get this today. This is like making my bed. It's success right out of the box, you know? And sometimes to put it, you know, incubation, like putting it aside for a while and coming back, it really works. This is like when you like, you know, start walking away and then you remember the thing that you wanted to tell the person. (laughs) What was that joke again? And then you remember like when you're in the car driving home. So that, that break helps with not just puzzle solving, but general creative problem solving universally among the folks I've talked to on this podcast, they do say that going to play the par three golf course or taking a walk that frees up that pressure side of their brain and their, the flow or the subconscious is already still thinking about the problem. So sitting in a room with fluorescent lights and banging your head on the keyboard is not the result. It's, it's actually the absence of that pressure. I think that allows it to, come to you. It seems almost like a muse is arriving, but you're kind of getting in the way of the work being done. (laughs) If you go better ideas, keep thinking of good ideas, something funny. This needs to be a hit song, right? That's an obstacle you can do without. I mean, that's why there's, you know, suggested time limit on brainstorming sessions. So you don't burn everyone out. Ideally you come back as a group another time. I do these workshops for idea generation that hour or two hours, that's not the end of it. That's not the end of idea generation. We've, we've thought about stuff. Now we go home and we come back maybe in a future time with whatever pops in your head from those long drives or shower, shower thoughts. Not having an editor judging you uh, at the brainstorming stage really, I'm sure has a lot to do with it. When you're in a group and somebody's already shutting things down or doing that kind of black hat thinking that, well, that could never happen and we don't have the money. And when they're already dismantling the early stages, it makes it very difficult to move forward. And there's a time, there's a time we need the editor and we need the critic. There's a time when you get down to what are we going to put our money into? But prior to that, staying in that fluid area, that state of play, that what if these two things were mashed up, really, I think is how artists work, how songwriters work. They're always sort of in a dreaming state. When you like criticize, let's just say uh, an idea in a brainstorming session, everyone at the team is no longer going to say anything outside of the box because they know that somebody is judging and they're thinking about, okay, that person said that idea is not feasible or that idea was already done before, right? 
And now before I say anything, I'm going to be like, okay, but is it feasible? Has anyone done this before? I'm going to be filtering everything I say now. I mean, aside from that, like those are not processes in your brain that you can do at the same time, like criticizing someone and also being open-minded and thinking wildly outside of the box. You're in the wrong headspace for that. As you said, we can, we can evaluate ideas later, but the important part during those short sessions is coming up with as many starting points as you can. And then we can talk about what can merge, what could get thrown out. It's like an all you can eat buffet allows you to choose all kinds of things as you go through it. But if you say, Hey, this is a set menu pick from these three things, it restricts you. And so I think that boundaries are important at certain times, particularly when you're writing or you're creating a speech or you're doing something. Sometimes they, you need to be creative within those rails and it keeps you from going outside of it. But in that early stage of just saying, what if, man, the more open space you have, the more freedom you have, the more, the less judgment you have, all of that bears so much more fruit. And then you can make a, a decision down the line. So constraints are really interesting. So I do this like all the time with consulting. What's the problem here? What are you trying to solve? Right. How do we come up with the prompt? I, I've done some interesting research on this on like number of constraints for a challenge to come up with ideas. You've sort of like building this like house or box and it's very hard to come up with, you know, creative ideas that meet all of these constraints. And then if you have open ended you know, let's just come up with ideas for clothing. Well, there's nothing to judge things on, but also like that's intimidating. Two constraints is this magic number where it you that's where you get some really interesting results. It's the balances of that that open-endedness and too many constraints. And if you think about it, it's it's a lot like categories, the board game, where they're like, I need you to think of something creative that starts with a certain letter and fits in this category. I get it. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. If you had a third one in there, right? It's a it becomes a very hard game to play in a minute. And if you only had one, things like that start with a certain letter, it's not fun. Right. Interesting. I like that. Like even when I listen to working with a corporate group trying to come up with a theme, when it's generic it feels lame. Like if they go, well, let's have a 50s dance. People go, uh, -huh. but if they say we're going to have a spy theme and we're going to add this element to it, right. Then sometimes you go, oh, no, that's, I haven't heard that at a corporate event. And I, I heard myself say spy theme, but I think it was on my mind because of the work you did for the international spy museum in DC. And that intrigued me as well was the elevator ride. First of all, how did you get tasked with creating this uh, sort of immersive elevator ride at the spy museum. I So I will, I will totally get there. I love how your brain works. Diagnose me. I think that's important. How you go from, from this thing and you're like, oh, it relates to that. And this relates to that. That is what creative people do. You're essentially mind mapping <laughs> aloud, sort of. I grew up on spy versus spy, which were the black versus white spy. And they always had these contraptions for catching each other in Mad Magazine. And for some reason, this is also watching creative problem solving happen, which is how are they going to have this 
mousetrap device catch the other spy or kill the other spy. And in a way, it does all relate back to certain things that we grow up with. But I've been to that International Spy Museum in D.C., and it's kind of a fun flavor, you know, to be a, to be a part of. That was a class project, by the way, the working with the Spy Museum, which is I'm so glad I was able to do that. But it, it was this, at the time, a smaller company in Boston called Five Wits that makes like mini themed experiences like puzzle rooms, very highly themed like Disney World. They were developing like a spy themed show for the spy museum. The the students in this course uh, that I, I was not teaching, this is Professor David Wallace at MIT. I was one of the students and we came up with uh, an elevator simulator and we prototyped the elevator and then it I think a different version of it ended up going in the actual museum. But the elevator was made up of scrolling walls and floors that vibrated and sound effects and lighting. It was sort of an immersive illusion. I love that stuff. Creating worlds for people, immersive environments. I mean, that's why I accidentally went into engineering in the first place to create immersive experiences. And those are my favorite parts of Disney rides where you're like, how did they do that? You know, or like, I really feel like I'm in the movie or in the cartoon. So do you use some of this in your classroom? In the classroom setting, try to make it as real as possible. I mean, we have real industry challenges, real companies, and they're, you know, saying, hey, we want uh, playground equipment for all types of users that, you know, that gets pole mounted. The classes that I teach here at the University of Minnesota are like a design consultancy, as real as possible. And immersive. So there's a lot of play. My staff all have like themed lab coats. It's more like a show, a production than a class. Well, you're here courtesy of one of your former students. A friend, Hunter Dunbar, said to me, oh, you got to have this guy on. He was the greatest teacher. It was super fun. He gave us a lot to think about. And he just remembers every day coming to class being stimulated by your process. Well, I remember Hunter. He was one of our mentor instructors for years after he took the course. That's how I like to teach. It's called a community of practice. People from the community, prior students are part of the learning teams with the students. They're making the projects, they're building prototypes in the shop with the actual students on their team. And everyone's learning from each other. So oftentimes someone would take the class graduate, and then they would be a volunteer instructor for a decade. Some people have been involved. Are you familiar with John Cleese's five important things for creativity? To have a place to go to to do this, to have a certain amount of time, as you said, but also to have not just the idea, but to have the incubation time to allow yourself to go away and come back and to have discipline where you're not allowing all the external stuff. But each of those things, as small as they seem, each one of them builds on the other. I was surprised to find out John Cleese has so much in common with the work that I'm doing. He's written academic journal papers on this stuff from his perspective on the relationships between humor and creativity. He did a lot of work with companies after Monty Python, the Holy Grail and all that, when he came, he began to do a lot of creative and innovative work with companies and advertising and products. I really admire the amount of thinking he's done on the subject. This is a guy I admired from TV and from comedy, but also the fact that he puts his mind to it. It's not frivolous. I cite his academic paper and his book in my 
in my book. I have a lot of respect for that. I can do this comedy stuff, but I think there's more to it than just laughs. I think I can use this for, for other like real world problems, leadership skills. Yeah, it's inspiring. When it comes down to it, living a life that has value is about being a team player, about being fun to be around, to be somebody who can solve a problem. Sales, which is a big part of the world, is selling things. Really what you're doing is you're solving people's problems. And so when you begin to understand that the core of that is to have a creative sense to be of value by being easy to work with. Part of that stuff is what keeps opportunity from coming is when people get stubborn and closed off and they're hoarding their ideas. It's problematic because there are solutions in the world that we can't get to because of egos and vanity and those sort of dark things that really keep flow from going. And I feel like politics is in that place in the worst way right now. I'm not going to take sides, but I'm saying the sides are so strongly against each other focused on blame, that they're not focused on solution. Let's keep our side. Let's vote for our side. Let's pick the people on our team. We, we don't want them to make any improvement, as opposed to what's the problem? Are we working on the problem? If you look at the world as a team, team play is less and less because somebody might be invested in the results. And there's agendas that are so deeply hidden that politics has a way to create divide instead of unity. There's this uh, saying, people don't want drill bits, they want holes in things. It's about getting to the actual needs or uh, problems that people have, as opposed to, you know, starting with what we already have. And that's what design provides. It allows you to step back and say, all right, let's talk to people. Let's observe people. Let's observe the market. It might not be the embodiment that we currently think of. It might not even be a product. It might be a service. It might be a process. That might be the solution. But let's step back and let's reframe what's going on here. Let's reframe this problem. I don't get into politics too much in the book, but there is a, an improv troupe here called the Theater of Public Policy. The concept is very interesting. They go to conferences or they have a speaker. It typically is a political related thing. They've merged into science fields and technology and they talk, you know, the person does a presentation and then they get interviewed and then they do skits, improvised skits about that deep, maybe very serious subject matter. And then they take questions from the audience for the expert and then they do more rounds of skits. But that improv, it allows you to talk about some things maybe more openly than you wouldn't. And then it also takes serious topics and it engages people in them. The nature of people slinging mud, let's say, only creates more mudslingers, right? Because that battle goes on. But if you frame a question appropriately, you can actually make a person answer from your side of it. For example, a question that is a great disabler in a, in a conflict is, what might make you change your mind? So if I say, Barry, under these circumstances, what would have to happen for you to see this from the other side? It's very strange, but you have to say, well, if you gave me a million bucks or if this was different or if it was on a different day, you have to have somebody thinking, yeah, how could this work? How could this be successful for both of us? Sometimes those problems are not super interesting. And so then we see what we see on TV. There was an interesting guest on that talked about the difference between 
sports, which is the outcome is there's a winning team and theater where the intention is different, which is how do we get everybody on the same team? But I do think that most of what we're seeing in politics is about who wins this argument, who gets what they want out of a policy. And again, this wasn't intended to be a big political rant, but who's looking out for the constituents? Who's looking out for the people in their state? Really, that stuff is falling by the wayside. So I guess as a creativity professor, I would ask you, how do we create better communication if that's the puzzle? How do we get people to sit at the same table? How do we get to a place where the communication allows more team building? That's more of my being a design professor hat because that's that's what design is. It's it's getting the stakeholders' views and understanding the actual problems and listening. This is where design thinking, I think, really can benefit politics. The design thinking movement sort of, you know, it's it's hit medical world, education, you know, business leaders are doing like the D-school stuff. I'm not sure when that's going to start making its way into public policy or if it has already. I'm glad that you're looking at it with a design cap on. And I would say that you probably make a big impact on how your students think. You know, to me, foundationally, the more people that are out in the world thinking is where the solution is going to come from. It's the non-thinkers that are taking over (laughs) that are creating a life. Like there's a movie called The Purge. I saw a trailer for it one time and I thought, this dystopian entertainment about essentially killing people off and doing whatever if you didn't like their points of view. It's brutal that we're trying to top it with the next movie like this. And my apologies to those that are purge lovers, but I just incensed by a trailer that says to me, my mental thought is, okay, not only is this a thought, it's a full feature film, which somebody wrote as a screenplay that somebody greenlighted, that somebody said, let's shoot this thing. Like there's so much energy put into putting out things that divide people and that create conflict. Now, I don't know if that's the same part of our brain that likes a horror movie. I don't know. But for some reason, there seems to be more and more, how do we take down the other guy? kind of movies. You know what I mean? So I don't know why that is. You know, I keep thinking of this game board company called Peaceable Kingdom. Have you heard of this? No, but I am intrigued by the title. Their premise is we're not going to do games where you lose and I win. We either all lose or we all win. And that's the essence of all of their board games. Listeners with little kids, you probably are familiar with like Hoot Hoot Owl or, you know, there's some other games in there that are pretty popular. But when you were a kid, when I was a kid, it, pretty most most of the games were there was a winner and a loser, and that still is sort of sort of the case. <laughs> um, but there are there are some now where you're in it together, like Overcooked, for example. I'm fascinated with this video game, and other people are too, from a perspective of not just like like the food service industry, but also it's essentially industrial engineering, like manufacturing cell design or uh, teamwork, like interpersonal skills. And in that game, like you work as a team with everyone in the room to try to make a certain number of hamburgers or whatever, right? But it's collective problem solving. And so you're working together with a problem. And if you lose, you all lose together, right? And if you win, you all win together. It's not me versus you like in Mario Kart or Mortal Kombat. And I like those, those style of games. I just think we need maybe more of that stuff. Even when you go to like kindergarten, if you think about the games, it's like 
tag or hide and seek there's a winner at the end the end or you know of, of this well, or it's everybody against one person right like we did kick the can and we did these various games where in hide and seek everybody hides and then one poor sucker has to go around and find them and i can't we had a game called werewolf where when you would find somebody you would join them in the hiding place but the funny thing was that at the end you know there would be like 11 people in a bush and, and one poor sucker wandering around in the street looking for everybody. In fact, one of my better hiding places in life was crawling under the barbecue and getting under the barbecue cover so that I was laying across it on my stomach. I, it was clever and it was a great hiding place. But what made me feel like a loser was I didn't get found. And so nobody knew how clever it was. And then it was boring to be stuck under the barbecue cover that whole time. So it was kind of like being too clever. Your creative artwork is so creative, no one gets it. It went over everyone's head. They don't realize how good it was. I'm going to bring this back to your book because I want to be sure people can get it. It's new. It came out in June and it's called Sparking Creativity and it's blending popular culture and design theory with a decade of scholarly research. The book shows how play and humor fuel innovation. Places that they can go, I mentioned earlier, wonderberry.com or they can follow you on Twitter at Kudrowitz, which is your last name. If you had a spark of creative inspiration that would jumpstart somebody who may be stuck, is there something that you would say, this is the first thing to do tomorrow just to test your wits? The two most common correlates with creativity are openness to new experience and extroversion. <laughs> and I think extroversion is only there because extroverts go out and meet a lot of people and they do lots of things, right? But, you know, if you want to jumpstart creativity, do new things, go to new places, order the different thing on the menu, bike a different way to work, change up your routine somewhere, right? It's exposure to new things, which is, you know, you're collecting these bits of information that you don't know when in the future you're going to use them. So say yes instead of no today to something. Thank you, Dr. Barry Kudwitz, for sharing your ideas and insights on creativity. You're an inspiring guy. Thanks so much for having me on this show. It was awesome. Thanks for joining us. We know you have many choices in the podcast universe, so we appreciate you investing the time to be part of our creative community. Creativity in Captivity is produced by Sweetwood Creative in Austin, Texas, with support from co-producer Tucker Hazel, Boy Genius. This episode was edited by the Right Honorable Hannah Dykstra. Original theme song written and sung by Maya Sharp. Additional support and technical jiggery-pokery provided by Diane Johansson, Delilah Lovejoy, and Tony Deo of Ghost Runner Records. If you are inclined to rate, review, and share this podcast with your friends that need a weekly creative boost, we would be forever grateful. If you'd like to check out our extensive listening library of creative conversations, please visit creativityincaptivity.fun. That's right. I said dot fun. It's like a recess with the fun after the first period. See you next week. Staring at an empty page, stepping on a ghostlit stage, a circus of unknown.